Wes, uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show. I know we've been talking for a few weeks now trying to line up our schedule, so it's uh, it really is truly an honour to have you on the show this evening. Yeah, I appreciate being here, and I'm glad we were able to finally line it up as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, US Air Force Master Sergeant retired, um, eight deployments, Special Operations, JTAC. Um, so I'd like to take that straight to the beginning. Why the United States Air Force and why the career path you chose? Yeah, um, good question. I, uh, and I was about this close to joining the Marines. Um, I really, yeah, I grew up, went to high school anyway, junior high and high school in, in Portland, Oregon, which uh, is not, not known for, for being a real military type area. So I didn't have too much background other than that, you know, a couple uncles in the Army and Marines in Vietnam. And then um, my stepdad that I grew up with, he had been in the Air Force early on. So I knew a lot about at least the Air Force back in the 50s and 60s. Um, so when I wanted to come in and at, at the time, I, I felt like I wanted to do something um, medic or rescue wise. And so I was looking at all the, at the different options uh, between Navy, Marines and Air Force. For some reason, I thought in my head that like Army wasn't, Army was just too run of the mill. I, again, I had no idea. I was just thinking, oh, Army, it's just you're a soldier out on you know, yeah, I didn't know all the, the, the awesome things you can do in the army, especially as a, as a special forces operator in the army, um, or a ranger, but that all came later. So I was looking between the Navy Marines and air force. And I came this close because the Marine recruiter was trying to tell me, Oh, we'll get you in recon. And there's a special, you know, rescue element in recon. It's over in Southern California. You'll go right there, you know, selling me that whole line. Um, but then he didn't get back to me when he was supposed to get back to me. Right. And in the meantime, I'm talking with the Air Force recruiters about this pararescue job that I found out about. And uh, I just ended up ended up going with that. And that's what I originally went in for was to be a, a PJ or pararescue man in the, in the Air Force, which I, I highlight a little in, in the book as well, the kind of yeah. little origin story and, and how I diverted from that. So um, how did you divert from the PJ to uh, Joint Tactical Air Command? Well, um, strangely, my, my recruiter, my initial Air Force recruiter, actually was a TACP, a Tactical Air Control Party member. Yeah. Um, that's what they called the career field I ended up in. And I remembered him telling me, oh, yeah, we'll go in behind enemy lines. We laser the target and drop bombs. And um, I thought it sounded really cool. Yeah. I also thought he was maybe like embellishing a little. It turns out he wasn't, um, but, uh, it, you know, I had in my head, oh, I want to do things that help people. I don't want to go try to kill people. That was for some reason what, um, what was going through my mind, even though, you know, you realize later any, any job you do in the military, you're supporting, you're all supporting each other. So you can't go in the military thinking, I'm just going to do something that saves people 
and and not realize that you're a part of the, the ultimate yeah. war machine when we go after bad guys you know um you're the guy saving the people that uh, are out killing hunting and killing bad guys but so that was my naive naivete as they call it um uh so you know i went in uh guaranteed as a paraskman meaning you're guaranteed to at least go to the training i think the seals do that now too yeah uh, and even sf may do that uh, so i went in graduated the the indoctrination course um after gosh four months worth there it's technically i think it was a 10-week course at the time but i spent about four months in total with prep course and then um a little bit of an a lot of an injury i had i had uh uh, Achille, acute Achilles tendonitis by the end of the indoctrination course, and that course is is for both the pair at the time was for both the paraskeman and the combat controllers, um, who ended up being kind of the brother career field of the TACP, as I found out later. Um, so kind of I pushed through that. Wasn't really sure if I was that into it, it, it uh, because you're doing a lot of it's basically like the initial part of SEALs buds training. You're not doing a lot of job training you're just getting hammered all day and doing gorilla drills and running and swimming and underwater stuff and um, getting ready for dive school so then I, at the time we go to army dive school the army um, sf combat diver course down in key west um, notoriously difficult to notoriously easy to uh, fail out of for safety violations and, and you name it. Usually people go there physically prepped from the courses they have to do before it, uh, but their, their safety, their um, methodologies for passing tests is very strict. And if you just mess one little part up, it's a violation and you two of those and you're out. So I failed out the first time in dive school after the second week for a safety violation with one of the ditch and dom procedures underwater with the tanks. Um, went back to the course and uh, and just was fed up. I was like that young guy, just fed up. And, you know, I was getting treated kind of really crappy. You, you got treated crappy if you failed any of the courses, right? Um, so I said, just screw it. I'm getting, I'm out of here. And I transitioned over to um, the tactical air control party recruitment team. Yep. And, uh, and then went from there and ended up going back to the PJ pipeline years later, and then coming back to the tacky career field is, it, it was a strange first few years in the, in the military, but I eventually found what I actually wanted to do. <laughs> um, at what stage of your military career were you at when 9-11 happened and how did that personally affect you? Yeah, I was, uh. Again, I came in pre-war, well, really yeah. post-Desert Storm, um, and then pre-9-11, I came in in 98. So I was to my operational unit with all the training I'd gone through and then switching over to, to TACP, and then I had to go through to TACP training, survival school, get to my unit, and that was about 99 by the time I got to an operational unit. That was Fort Drum, New York, which is um, northern New York, right near the border uh, with Canada. And at the time I was, I was at work um, with the guys and we were actually out in the, in the field just north of our, of our uh, squadron building on Fort Drum. That's what the 10th uh, Mountain, the Army's 10th Mountain Division, by the way. Um, 
we were out there doing radio checks. We'd have our Humvees full of our radio pallets, radio communication pallet. Um, they had all the communications we needed because as a, as a JTAC, as the guy calling in air power, your, your comms were your lifeline. So that was our, our primary thing we trained on outside of uh, controlling aircraft. So we do radio checks weekly on our vehicles, check the vehicles, you know, maintenance checks, everything. And that's what we were doing. And then we had somebody, one of the guys come out and yell, Hey, they want to talk to you inside. And I'm all, I'm all pissed, pissed off and full of piss and vinegar at the time. Um, that lasted a few years before it went away. Well, it didn't really fully go away. It lasted a few years till I calmed down. But I remember even yelling like, you know what the f somebody must somebody better have died to pull us in because i thought it was so important what i was doing out there you know um uh, not knowing of course what happened um, yeah and we went in and yeah we had the old it was before everybody had flat screens you know everywhere at all the units and um we were just right when we were getting like the old type of computers we had maybe had a couple in each uh in each flight as we call them which is like a team or a troop um but yeah, we each had like one way too big tubish type of television uh, <laughs> down in the first floor of our squadron and the news was on and it was at the time replaying that first hit into the uh, into the first tower and then explaining what went on. And we were all like everyone just in shock and awe because that was actually even one of the things that I remember kind of complaining about as a young guy came in. And then once I once I got into the job and and you know got my initial training, now I'm all ready, gearing up and ready for something to to do the do something with all of this. Yeah. And we used to kind of sit around and lament like, oh, nobody's ever going to attack the U.S. We're not going to go and get into a war. Um, and, you know, it's not that that's a good thing to wish for, but you can probably relate. That's what young guys sit around and wish for. Um, yeah. So, yeah, then that that happened, um, and and things things just developed from there, as we know. Tenth uh, Mountain Division, where we were attached, ended up. Well, first the our special operations, uh, the Rangers sent guys in. Of course, the CIA was in with them. I had a a good friend who had just recently um, gone and attached to the Rangers down in Georgia, and he deployed. He was one of the first guys in like that. Uh, by November or by October, I believe. Um, and then within a couple months, the 10th Mountain Division uh, sent uh, units in and we sent a few guys. I didn't end up, I was attached to the, to the different team, to the other team that yeah. didn't that ended up staying home that first deployment. So we had a bunch of guys, um, several who are my friends to this day that, you know, deployed in those first few months and ended up being in Operation Anaconda um, on the 10th Mountain Division side. And then I know a couple of guys on the on the soft side as well um, that were in that fight. Um, so what year was it that you went over into the sandbox then? Uh, I remember it, that was uh, the end of 2004 into early 2005. Because what I ended up doing was um, Right when September 11th happened, I was gearing up. I had been gearing up to go back to dive school at that time. I was yeah. really upset that I uh, failed out. Um, and I knew like it was something I could have graduated. 
So I worked and worked and to, to go back to a, a pre-combat dive school, you had to go to a, a um, approved pre-combat dive school within six months before going back to dive school. So I ended up going down to Fort Bragg um, where I later got stationed and going to through their, the third groups, uh, third special forces groups, pre-combat drive, dive training, um, prepped for that. And then by, by uh, gosh, when September 11th happened, I had already gone to that pre-combat dive school and I was trying to get in a dive course. And I got in by about uh, January um, of the next year, uh, January later that winter, yeah. um, ended up graduating. And then I went from there, you know, we had, I wasn't one of the first guys tasked to Afghanistan. So I just kept focusing on, all right, I'm going to go. I thought, well, I just graduated this uh, dive school. I'm going to go finish what I started in the PJ course. Um, yeah. I went back to that and I was there for about two years. I went through all the medical training, became a paramedic qualified, went through a bunch of other schools like um, free fall, airborne as well, free fall. Um, and then uh, by then it was gosh, coming, coming to the end of 2003 into 2004. And uh, I had a bunch of buddies from, from TACP and from Fort Drum that at that point had been back and forth in Afghanistan and then did the invasion into Iraq. Yeah. And, uh, and I just had a, a, you know, a second coming to Jesus, if you will. I really did, didn't like what I ended up doing um, in the PJ pipeline as, as they call it. Uh, even though I got a lot of good training out of it, I just was not fulfilled. I just didn't feel like it was the job that I wanted to do when I deployed. Um, and I wanted to go back and be that guy that called in airstrikes, like my buddies, um, you know, were, were actively doing. So then I left the, the pipeline again with all the, about just a, you know, a couple months away from, from formally graduating and, and went back to my previous career field. It's kind of, kind of ridiculous looking back kind of an identity crisis for a while, but what came out of it, you know, it wasn't a waste made to the, to the air force at the time. It might look like that, right. They're like, Oh, we wasted this money on this guy. Um, but all of that training that I had in the years leading up, um, when I did deploy finally kind of early, earlier on, but a couple of years into the Afghanistan, um, war, uh, you know, all of that applied. And it made me much better than I would have been had I not had it. So, um, so am, am I correct in thinking you went to Iraq first in 2004? Um, were you part of the um, combat in Fallujah? Um, my unit was a part of the combat in Fallujah. I actually just narrowly missed the the second big push in in Fallujah. Um, right. just came in and my guys, I was replacing our guys that, uh, that did that push. And it was a, you know, they did some, some, some really good work there. Um, deploying with both the, the attaching with both army and Marine elements. Uh, and it, at the time I had just gotten back from the pararescue community and I was stationed at uh, Fort hood in Texas. So yeah. I was deployed with the first cavalry division. Um, so our guys there attached with army units and then a couple of them went off with marine units that didn't have JTACs at the time. Yeah. Um, so did some great stuff. I mean, I know I've got a, a good buddy that wasn't even JTAC qualified. He's a young guy, um, you know, brand new in and, um, 
you know, lobbed a, a grenade launcher from one balcony to the other to to get a, a, an enemy position that was pinning them down and right. just nailed them. Just kind of, well, you don't want to say luck because there was skill involved, but a lot of luck in, um, yeah. <laughs> in that. But, you know, crazy stories coming out of there like, like that one. Um, uh, what I ended up doing was pushing down to uh, what's called the Sunni Triangle. I was in the Mamadia, an area called Mamadia, just south or southern outskirts of Baghdad um, for that rotation. Um, so being um, JTAC in a kinetic environment, were you with the moving force or were you sort of held back a bit so you could control the airspace or were you with them calling in airstrikes as they moved forward? Uh, that's a really good question. That It, it varies on um, what the mission is and then what really you as a JTAC work out with your um, ground force commander. And then where you at you where you're at in the echelons. Um, so if you're a younger JTAC, you usually will talk uh, well, whether it be conventional or special operations, you'll be out <clears throat> with typically no no lower than a company element. You'll be attached to to a company. You might push out with a squad, right? But you'll be attached to that company commander um, as his JTAC. Or her, as, as the case may may be today, uh, but that was never the case for me back then, of course. And then, as a as a soft JTAC, you'll be with a special forces team, right? And as you get a little older, um, a little more rank, you might be back at battalion or brigade or division, or you might be at special operations task force level as a soft guy. Um, but for different efforts out forward, it might behoove you to say, "Hey, you're going to go with this." Uh, this squad that's doing recce and you're going to go on the on the hilltop and, and perform overwatch and then i'll be also be the jtac to cover the advance with with cas or they it might be better for you to stay with that uh that headquarters element and be right there with the the senior ground ground commander yeah. um, and a lot of that comes down to the the jtac himself um joint terminal attack controller as we call it JTAC himself coordinating this with the ground commander. Sometimes that ground commander will know what they want to do with you. And despite what you may want to do, they'll, they'll say, no, we're going to do this. And then yeah. other times it's a good collaborative effort where you're, because you're half your job is advising how to use me as an asset properly, how to incorporate air power into your, um, what's called the ground force scheme of maneuver. Was there ever a uh, interforce language barrier between the Air Force and the Army having different lingo? Was there any sort of uh, confusion between the two when you were trying to relay messages? Um, well, really, that's that's what the JTAC is there for. Uh, you get to speak both languages. You get yeah. you get trained as a as a ground guy to go out primarily um, with the Army with Army units. Uh, though I ended up attaching attaching with Marines as well uh, at one point, um, and and you get trained to be that translator between the air talk and how pilots talk and and look at things and how the Air Force runs yeah. um, into the Army, and especially early on. So really, there were usually not those issues for us because we we're the ones addressing those issues. We we're the ones yeah. being the translators, um, and and it's 
the U.S. military and I'd say UK, you know, our our um, allies as well. It probably goes just the same for them. That early on in the war on terror, joint operations were a lot more difficult. We're not nearly as good as it, at it as we are now. Um, yeah. And as the years progressed, we just we got a lot better. And today, there's still it, there's always issues, and that's why roles like being a JTAC are always going to be needed. Where you're. Yeah. Your half your job is advising and liaison to that other force, um, but much better than it was early on. In fact, when we there were times when I, I'd I'd be attached with units and some of the soldiers, even senior ranking soldiers, officers, warrant officers, wouldn't know why an Air Force guy was with them and what we did. Right. And then when we told them, they didn't believe it. They're like, "No, Air Force doesn't have guys that do that. Like we do that. We got our fires guy." Um, so, but as the years went on, you know, now everybody pretty much knows what uh, what the Air Force guy is there for. Yeah. Um, what did you enjoy calling in the most? Would it be um, C-130, uh, Apache AH-64, or the Warthog A-10? Which did you enjoy calling in the most? Man, I, I really always, uh, anybody, I don't know of any JTAC that didn't love having Apaches because you bring them in and um, usually no one's messing with you. And if they are there, it's not gonna be for long. And you've got a lot of firepower with them. Um, so you always have that element of like, all right, as soon as those, those two Apaches are overhead, like I'm, I'm good. Like, you no, know, it's, it's gonna take a lot for them to mess with us now because they're just intimidating. They can get right on guys and follow them as opposed to, you know, aircraft with, with great targeting pods, but they can lose people still. Um, and the enemy all figured that out. So they generally go go running when something like an Apache showed up. Um, Kiowas I love too because yeah. uh, and they're so quiet. And and that was they didn't have nearly as much they don't have nearly as much firepower as the Apache, but quiet as hell. And you can use them uh, for things when you don't want to, uh, you know, clue in that that enemy force. Great at long distance observation as well. And then. On the fixed wing side, um, gosh, it just, it, I'd say it really came down to the pilots, the air crew. Right. Um, we definitely always love A-10s, uh, but, you, you know, there's some benefits to having other platforms yep. that maybe can stick around um, for a little bit longer sometimes. Uh and, and, you know, as the years, this was another facet where, as you, you know, early on, F-16s especially weren't nearly as good at the cast game, but they got increasingly tasked where you were probably getting an F-16 more than you were getting an A-10 for any of your, your air requests, right? Um, and then sometimes 18s and 15s as well. And so those pilots that were increasingly back and forth and tasked with close air support, they're getting really good to where you didn't really notice that much of a difference. And the only difference you notice is that, you know, um, the, an F-16 can't come in and do that awesome strafe run, 30 millimeter strafe run that A-10 can do. That's equally intimidating um, as what I was talking about with the Apaches. Um, uh, was there ever a moment where you had to call in air support danger close? And how close was that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, danger close is, you know, calling in close air support within 
close proximity, well, close air support is the definition is within close pro proximity of yourself or friendly units. Um, danger close is when the whatever ordinance you're using, say a 500 pound bomb or 20 or 30, 30 millimeter strafe um, is deemed to be, uh, there are friendlies deemed to be within that, within the bubble yeah. where potential effects from, from that ordinance could cause friendly casualties. And there's, you know, percentages of that, what percentage of friendly casualties and, and goes on. It's all um, calculated by scientists using, uh, you know, field testing out with various ordinances and various ranges, right? Um, so, yes, I, I called in quite a, quite a lot of uh, strikes, danger close, uh, early on when I was um, a, a forward JTAC with both infantry and special forces, um, either danger close to myself and the guys that were around me, or um, even more often, danger close to partner forces that I was supporting with close air support. And that applied, that extended over to strike cell operations against ISIS, like even the, the first um, couple months of uh, strike cell operations in, in Iraq, uh, pushing ISIS back from Baghdad, we did, we did just a, a ton of danger close strikes. Um, and, you know, it was all those years of, of wartime experience and training and refining the, the joint fires game as a, as a community and as an individual, as individual JTACs. That really culminated in us being able to push in at that moment and, and provide that kind of precision air power um, uh, within danger close of partner forces. And in my experience, never having any casualties on the partner force side because yeah. you, you mitigated this the strike the right way. You communicated with your partner force in the right way to say, <clears throat> hey, get behind this berm or don't push any further forward because a bomb is about to, you know, throw about 150 or 200 meters in front of you right um so all those all those uh stops in effect to be able to put ordinance on enemy and safeguard all friendlies yeah um you obviously you mentioned that you did um jtac for special forces as well how did you get selected for special forces um well in my my community in the TACB community you start out every, the career field of TACP in the Air Force um, was made to support conventional maneuver units and and still does. You have TACP spread out across the, the Army conventional maneuver units to, to support or TACP units. Um, and then sometime in the 80s, 80s slash 90s, um, the career field started slicing, slicing off uh, some elements, you know, a handful of of handpicked individuals to go support both special forces um, and rangers as joint fires experts. And uh, at the time, you know, forward air controllers and it became enlisted terminal TAC controller, ETAC, and then it became a JTAC, a joint. Um, so then when, and it was a very small handful, I mean, we're saying talking like a couple dozen uh, total career field wise out of, out of about, a thousand to fifteen hundred TACPs Air Force wide. When when September 11th kicked off, and the need for Air Force guys attached as JTACs to teams, to special operations teams became like the number one need for Air Force ground guys. Um, 
that then increased. So it got to be the soft, what we called special operations forces, TACP, grew to somewhere around 100, maybe a little more. Um, and then with that, there were the Air Force combat controllers um, who are kind of a brethren career field. They initially came up as the guys, they're, they're special, they're, they're trained in all the special operations insert skills. Um, and then they're air traffic control qualified. So they initially came up to be the guys that go forward, seize an austere airfield and are able to set it up and control all the assets to get a, you know, we go in, in, in China, right. And we take one of their airfields and, and they set it up and get it moving and get it going. Uh, but their secondary skill at the time was close air support. Um, that became for the combat controllers because the need was so paramount for soft. Um, almost all of them became JTAC qualified. So now you had the combat controllers and you had this, the smaller element of about combat controllers being, you know, 500, 800 deep manning wise across the Air Force, um, varying through the years. And then you had the soft tech B of about 100, 100 plus. Um, and those guys, we ended up all working together sometimes under different chains of command, but the end result of going and attaching with special operations teams um, uh, forward. And so for SoftTACP, it was, uh, you had to have, you had to be a you know somewhat senior JTAC, have good downrange experience, and then go through an assessment, um, you know, physical assessment. And then it was a varied from a week long to two week long, um, you know, in, in-person, assessment kind of an in-doc and screening course um, that that weeded out who they wanted to pull over to the soft side of the house. Throughout the war on terror and throughout, you know, GWA as we call it, most, most of what they were looking for is they wanted the physicality, sure, but they wanted the smart, very best JTACs out of the TACP community um, to go be the guys to attach to special forces. Uh, so, so finally, by about... Um, it's 2011, uh, I ended up pushing over to the special operations side. So about the last, we'll say this first two thirds of my career, all conventional forces, and then the last third special operations, which gave a, you know, it gives you some really good background when you have that solid conventional experience, um, especially when you go and plug in with, in areas where there's a large conventional force, uh, which you it was at least early on in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Were were there any points during um, your deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, where you were able to reflect on what had happened up to that point, or did you even allow yourself to reflect on what happened? Yeah, I'd say as as Afghanistan went on. Um, because it, my last deployment to Afghanistan was 2017. So you go from 2005 to 2017. Um, and then experience, you know, with it starting, starting from September 11th. Um, and yeah, the, the last few deployments, especially to Afghanistan, you go there, you do, you do your job, you, you do your job the, the best that you can, you know, utilize your training to the full extent. Um, no matter who you are, from my experience, but you know, I'd, I'd say a good 80, 90, even at times 100% of us that, that would be there on any given deployment 
there'd always be grumblings of um, what the hell are we still here for? What are, what are yeah. we even doing? Um, this is going to go nowhere. You know, we're risking ourselves for no reason. Uh, yada, yada. The list goes on. But you end up, you're there, you're tasked with the mission, and you do it to the best of your ability. Um, uh, and, and so you end up putting pushing a lot of that aside. But yeah, it does come up for sure. It came up for me personally, you know, something I brought it to bring back home and talk to my, my wife about who, you know, spent the whole, my whole career, spent our whole career together, luckily, somehow. And um, then, you know, it's something you talk to your best, your best friends about. It's something you had to, I remember deploying on with special forces teams. And it's something you kind of bullshit about and, and uh, complain about with each other. Uh, in, in between missions and operations, you know, yeah. when it's time to go do that operation again, you put it all aside and go meet mission, as they say. Uh, did, did you ever feel that you you got PTS PTSD from deployments? Oh yeah, um, and that's something I didn't I didn't acknowledge until years later because you know even to this day the PTSD thing is a is a stigma yeah um, and then it's not only a stigma but then you have the other portion of uh the, the other population i think of veterans um that that use it almost like a badge uh like an, an honor badge and they want everybody to know and they are out there flaunting it like i'm um, i deserve something more because i'm a wounded warrior and this and that yeah. and I, you know i don't want to disparage it's even sometimes guys that do have problems, um, but they're approaching it in that way. I don't want to disparage or discredit, disparage or discredit um, people that are having the problems, and maybe that's different guys' way of working through things. Uh, but you know, for for all those different reasons, you end up. For me, I ended up internalizing it, and not even once I kind of realized, yeah, I'm probably having issues. Didn't want to say anything about it. Then we also had the issue of. Once you came out and started getting counseling, the military, I don't know if it was like this in you know, the UK, but uh, for the US military, there's big campaigns about, oh, come out and don't be ashamed or we're going to get you help. But yeah, it will, but then you won't be deploying anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So that happened that, you know, I got, I got threatened with that essentially. The first time I started seeing a counselor was when I deployed to Korea. A remote in 20, 2007. I'd done Iraq and Afghanistan by then. Both places I, I you know, saw death. Afghanistan was, was the worst uh, of the two rotations for me. And, uh, and I was dealing with things I didn't even realize I had been dealing with. Ended up seeing a counselor, and I remember that count, that psychologist. Uh, you know, with good intentions said, I don't think you should be deploying anymore. And, you know, went down that line and I promptly never went back to see him and, um, you know, went back to a stateside unit where that, that counseling folder didn't follow me and didn't bring yeah. it up again because I didn't want it to prevent me deploying. That's what I was there for. That's what I felt yeah. like I was, this is what I'm doing. What else would I be serving? All my, my entire job is training to call in airstrikes on enemies. Um, so yeah, then, you know, years later, more deployments and it all com comes compounding again. And I didn't really deal with my 
with the effects of that again until the last about year and a half of my career for retired only because I knew I was retiring and it wouldn't, wasn't going to negatively affect uh, my career anymore. Um, well, I, I won't say that I did. I did a couple of years before that. And again, ended up uh, almost preventing me from deploying for a while, but I fought to get back on a yeah. on deployment. So, and I really regret it. So sadly enough, there I was like saying, Hey, I'm really dealing with stuff. Like I'm not crazy. I'm not going to go shooting people up and uh, whatever, doing something, you know, extreme like that. But, um, you know, I'm not suicidal. I never was, but, uh, but, I, you know, I had so many things that I wanted to deal with and I was ready at that point to, to talk to someone again. I'd say this was the 2013 timeframe. Um, and then there again, same thing, I, th I think with good intentions, but, you know, the unit I was at, which was the special operations um, unit, they would take guys and it was like, uh, almost like you, you're that, uh, you're the black sheep. We're going to put you over in this special program of like resiliency and getting better, but you're not going to be going deploying or anything else. And for guys like us, it was, that was like a, um, it was a punishment, you know, yeah. you get like a sentence. So put that aside again and actually fast forward, that was going into the 2014 rotation against ISIS. Um, and that one I had, I had fought to get back on the deployment queue um, with the unit. Initially I was going to go to our Afghanistan rotation, um, but I was slated to go. And then because I was on the books to go, it was, it was I was prime. They, I was w getting ready to head out the door within a month or less i think and then yeah. isis kicked off and they pulled me and put me over there so had i not fought to get back deployable um i wouldn't have been on that either <laughs> so um at what stage did you decide to write your book uh hunting the kefillet and did that help with your pts did you perhaps use that as um a method to release everything out of your mind and put it onto paper. Yeah. Um, I, well, at what point it was, uh, gosh, towards the end of 2015 when, uh, I was actually, um, approached by general Batard ended up being my, my co-author, um, to provide, provide some input on my JTAC uh, perspective from the fight against uh, ISIS, the, the first few months of that fight in, in Baghdad in 2014. And, you know, General Batard, of course, was our, was the ground force commander of Iraq, and he was the strike cell um, lead, the, the target engagement authority and director at the time, running the Baghdad strike cell that we set up as a, as a, a core of soft JTACs. Me, SEAL JTACs, and then we had SF JTACs in there. And then my combat controllers, uh, I was in charge of a team of soft tech P's and combat controllers. Um, so, you know, we had worked with General Batard for those first few months. And yeah, what was a year, about a year and a half later, he, he was getting ready to retire. He'd already retired. And he was starting to write this book and reached out to a few of us uh, for some perspective. And I gave him some back and he ended up calling me uh, 
I remember I was back home on a cast trip to uh, a bombing range in New Jersey called Warren Grove, um, going out and doing, doing training close air support. And he called me and, and said, hey, Wes, you know, I'm really having trouble putting together everything that I want to reflect, be reflected in this book. And I think it would be awesome if we teamed up and you provide that JTAC side and I provide the general side. And I was like, wow, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I really, I, I didn't plan on it. I just kind of fell into it. And then I just dedicated, gosh, it was the next three years I was writing while I was still finishing my career and deploying um, uh, to finish that, that book, which ended up being fully published the next year after I retired in 2018. So it was a long process. <laughs> did, did it help you in any way doing that? Oh yeah, I, yeah, I missed that. Um, yes, definitely. It. Yep. It. Uh, in some ways, it didn't at first because I wrote. I had a few stories in there, especially from early on experiences. Because um, part of our book is, we tried to make it a very a history book on what happened, but from a first person perspective. And with that, we put in kind of some origin stories of both of us. Mine were growing up in the war on terror as a young JTAC. And so I had a couple experiences in there that um, really affected me and not even, you know, I've got more that I didn't want to put in there. And I might, even if I uh, uh, finish a second book, probably won't even be in that one. Um, but so writing that stuff, if you don't treat it appropriately, it's actually not cathartic. Right. But at the time I was going through a, um, at one of the peak times of, of writing and finishing the book was towards these, in 2017, um, towards the latter half, I started going, cause I was getting ready to retire again. I realized, um, Hey, now I can start seeing someone and it's, it's going to be okay. Uh, so I did that for myself and for the, for the way forward, um, for, you know, post-transition. And so I was seeing someone that was doing a lot of therapy where you, um, you tell and write out your story. That was actually part of it. Anything yeah. that you have in your mind that you're stuck on that you constantly think about or have trauma about, um, you write out over and over, you, you speak it and you do it until, um, essentially, I may not be saying it the right way, but essentially until you can emotionally detach and relate the story without breaking down somewhere and early on I when I, I when I'd get to certain parts I remember you know doing this exercise with the, with the counselor um I'd get to certain parts and I'd like break down and or start you know my voice quivering every time even if I felt all good right when I got to that part and I and I, that actually it was effective because a few times sessions into it and and there I was like just relaying the story um, not emotionless, but without triggering and, you know, going into you know, a real high emotional state or, you know, even, even crying at times I could do it and stay level, um, like I am now. So same thing for writing stories in, in a book. If you don't, I think, I feel like if you don't approach it in that way, um, I have some kind of plan for how you're going to how, how are you going to react to what you're writing? Uh, it, it could actually be worse. It could be something that you're, where you're triggering, you're triggering yourself every time you're writing about it or reading about it. Yeah. Um, 
I read that you class yourself as a amateur philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what exactly is an amateur philosopher? Well, um, it's someone that, you know, grew up immersed in philosophy, Eastern. And, you know, I love my favorite philosopher of all times is, is Emerson, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And, uh, and he definitely thinks a lot. In fact, probably too much. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm a huge thinker and I won't say all of what I'm thinking is always great. Uh, but, and then who ended up eventually writing about a lot of the things I think about, but I guess I put amateur because I say, you know, I, for me, a true philosopher is like that Emerson or Thoreau, um, or on the Eastern side, you know, Sun Tzu type of thing, or, you know, yeah. Lao Tzu with the, with the Tao Te Ching. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to call myself a real philosopher. I mired in philosophy in my, in my bachelor's as well, but uh, I still wouldn't call that was because I, it's what I, something I loved. So I pursued it, you know, um, I guess if I ever come up with something profound that other people use, then I could say, yeah, I'm a philosopher. I made that up. <laughs> um, also, so that you um, enjoy martial arts. And I'll probably say philosophy goes hand in hand with martial arts. Uh, I myself do uh, Shotokan Karate. Um, is it Chinese Kung Fu that you perform and teach? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because my, my grandpa, who's my, my biggest... Um, influence in getting me into martial arts yeah. he was a black belt in shotokan through uh, oh, wow. through the nishiyama lineage um he would always he always make sure to to call that out you know what style as well um, so i remember him like giving me and my, my my cousins my cousins were all kind of around my same age giving us lessons in shotokan it was very like you know hard fast um yeah. a lot of respect for like the hard the the true shotokan practitioner uh, but he'd be sitting there. I remember on the, on our houseboat that we grew up going to. We had the, uh, this little houseboat that they my grandparents had bought in the '60s, if I remember right, and they kept it over the years. Um, but I remember him talking about you know somebody putting their hand on you or in a strangle chip, and and doing this move where you come up with both hands, right? But you do it all the way up to the ceiling, which was like a textured ceiling in our the deck above in our houseboat. And I remember him um, scraping his knuckles on there, like showing us and getting really into it and, and then getting done. His knuckles are all bleeding. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> you know, talking about how you, you desensitize yourself from pain and yeah. Um, that. So yeah, I got into at about 12 in Oregon, I got into um, Kempo karate. Yeah. Kind of a, hybrid hybrid karate i'd say if you will a lot of a lot of like chinese martial arts influences in it um then later kind of dabbled in japanese martial arts through the years as of when i went in the military at 20 i trained with different people wherever i went whenever i had the chance um so you know dabbled in uh in jujitsu um and in, in Iaijitsu and Kenjutsu, swordsmanship, uh, Gojuru karate. I remember I trained with a guy in that for a while. Shotokan, very, very little, uh, but kept up the Kempo. 
yeah. um, ended up getting a, a black belt in that eventually for my teacher and kept that training. And then when I went to Korea in 2007, um, which I went kicking and screaming, it was a remote tour away from my wife for a year. Yeah. I did not want to go. So, but I couldn't get out of it. But I said, I'm just going to find a, I was never really into Korean martial arts. I felt like, but I was like, I'll find like a Hapkido guy. I like Hapkido. It's pretty cool. Um, find a Hapkido guy and train with him. Well, Cam Casey at the time, um, uh, near the border of, of, uh, of North Korea, somewhat near the border. Um, there was a, an old Korean man in his seventies then 77 to be precise, um, with a, their, their flyers in the gyms saying, come train in Kung Fu. And so I called him up and he met me and turned out, you know, I'd been in the arts long enough and I'd met, you know, very high level practitioners, guys that, you know, we consider masters. I felt like I knew the difference in the first, he was old and, you know, health already, you know, you're 77, you're not going to be the epitome of, um, of, uh, you know, you're going to be in your prime. Yeah. Um, and so I think that deceived a lot of people that would come to see him. They'd think, oh, he's some goofy old man. But what I saw was I could tell, like, this guy is actually the real deal. Um, he's a real master. And he taught Kung Fu. And it ended up being praying mantis Kung Fu. Um, so for the first couple of months, my thought frame, my, my mindset was, you know, I'm going to still do Kempo, but I'm going to train with him. After about two months, two months, um, I realized I really love this art and this is all I want to do. And it was so contrary to what I was doing with Kempo yep. that I couldn't really effectively do both. The movement were different. In fact, he used to tell me, he joked for the first year we trained because I ended up staying longer. He used to joke like, you do karate kung fu. You got to, eventually you do real kung fu. Because um, I looked like a karate guy doing kung fu. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I eventually just transitioned fully to, if you will, to being a Chinese martial art practitioner. But I still, because, you know, my background and how much time I spent in the other arts, I just have a lot of respect for all, any anyone that's still upholding the traditional arts. And, uh, and you know, really the fact of the matter is you just find the one, the one that fits your personality, your, the way you like to move. Um, in fact, Master Pak was his, was his name and he's still alive. He's 90 now. Um, he used to tell me, he used to say that um, they would say growing up, martial arts are like flowers. That everyone, you know, flowers generally all the same, beautiful, you know, same structure. They all smell pretty in their own different ways, but everyone has their own liking of what type of flower they like. Um, so I thought that was a cool way to look at it. Yeah. Do you uh, still practice um, Kung Fu or is it something that you only did while you were over there? No, no, I still avidly practice. I mean, uh, you know, like anything when you have, well, when you deal with injuries and ailments as you get older, but you know, the busyness of life and yeah. um post post military career because i didn't you know most people don't just retire and then stop working so i have a new career and uh so outside of that stuff yeah i i train as much as possible as much as i can in fact i'm on a i've been on a kick lately to get back into uh uh 
more robust training regime after kind of being off the wagon for a little bit just because of work yeah. schedule and everything else and it's a just a love huge part of my life and, and a love and it's something that brings me um you know keeps me sane and gets me centered um and especially you know, training outside that's my favorite thing um, i usually work out outside i live around woods so i'm lucky enough to have that and i can be in the woods and train and just experience that um it's almost like it's my spirituality if you will you know um so now obviously retired from the armed forces um how are you managing to fill your days um being sort of semi-retired yeah i well i i do um i got got into even more writing after hunting the caliphate because we ended up you know interviewing um especially the first year in different forums i ended up uh you know writing op-eds or contributing to to different um different reporters reports about some of the smaller media outlets and then some of the bigger ones like politico new york times washington post i'd get you know reporters reaching out and saying can you give me some info about this or give me commentary about this um so it started doing a little contributing and defense analysis um uh and and just as much writing as i could in fact i've written a whole lot more than what's actually published out there it's just the nature of the writing game <laughs> um but then then i got into the defense industry as well kind of a yeah. couple of years after after retirement um uh was was doing contracting for a while as a jtac contractor and instructor basically doing instructing what i was doing before but as a um, civilian contractor and then got into the defense technology industry uh in tactical communications and now i'm in work in advanced broadband communications um, wow. and actually cover all of like, my whole area is special operations so it's a pretty great fit it's really fulfilling um because i get to you know bring advanced broadband solutions to the special operations customer and then i get to um kind of shape i get to to bring their needs back to the company yeah almost like being a jtac in a sense where i'm the liaison between the company's core of these awesome brainiac engineers and then these special operators and what their missions are and their needs yeah. to be able to translate between um to with the end result of you know bringing the best the best best solution um to the warfighter out there that's it's a great fit for for people like us um and you know it, it takes someone that spent 20 years just as a nug calling an airstrike so you know there's more to it than that but and and it provides them a a valuable path you know so that's pretty cool and still being a part of things um still doing something you feel like you're really contributing in whether it's the military or not is that i knew i realized at one point i had to do um for sure um what advice would you give to uh number one a veteran um who's leaving the armed forces and wondering what life's going to look like and two what advice would you give to a veteran that might be struggling with pts through combat experiences um for the veterans getting out i'd say my biggest advice is um 
it's going to be hard and you're going to you're going to go through a lot of different uh changes and probably job changes too um i do all sorts of different things and i've tried all sorts of different things since i got out um uh but by the time i i, I picked the path i wanted got it wasn't until about two years into it two years plus into post-retirement um, you know i was i was lucky and um got a book out and was doing things related to that and that was great experience and i still consider myself fortunate for something like that um but when you're talking about like you know for me that was never i wasn't just gonna do that for the rest of my life um, i wanted to form another career and kind of do that on the on the side as well um but uh gosh i'd say say this this job that i'm in now this career and the company i'm with is my fourth formal post uh, military employment and that was since getting out early 2018 so so except that it's going to be difficult and there's going to be some um there's going to be challenges and you're, you might not necessarily really know what you want to do for a while um because i i didn't at all uh and then you know even gosh covid covid was difficult too um the company i was with at the time down cut themselves by half by the end of COVID and I was one of them. Um, so experience some of that difficulty as well for quite a while. Um, uh, and then, you know, I, but I thought getting out, I thought, uh, that I had it nailed. Like I was going to be fine because I, I had always heard that from everyone, but no, it ended up, ended up being the same. I'd say just accept it. It's almost like, you know, when we get taught in drown proofing or, done anything related to water stuff like or martial arts when you're um <clears throat> when you're being dominated by your opponent uh it's best not to fight as much as let that happen at the time and adjust and know that you're going to get your chance at some point um to counter <laughs> so just embrace embrace the suck is what i would, yeah that's what i should say like know that there's going to be some really hard some sucky times but also it's much better on the outside. Um, what, what, I won't say I miss a lot of about being in, but uh, I'm glad I'm out. Um, I'm glad I, I did my service and I really realized when I got out and you don't, you don't have not only the responsibilities but that you had, but you're not um, owned by the government, right? Yeah. I really realized what actually personal freedom was and what service meant, I didn't realize because I joined so young. Um, and so it gave me such a better appreciation for the people still serving. Um, and then with the PTSD thing, with the advice on anyone that feels like they may be dealing with PTSD. Um, you know, I've, <clears throat> I told my story, I've got friends that went whole other directions, you know, with theirs um, of suicide. Of um, you know, of a lot of violence uh, and and other things. Uh, of course, alcohol and drugs huge. Luckily, I never never really went that route. I went other routes. Um, so I'd say put aside all the <clears throat> preconceptions that are out there. And I even have you know preconceptions. I brought them up of 
you know, you still get judged and, you know, there's the, the veterans that I think kind of take advantage of things and, you know, want that sense of I'm a wounded warrior. And so I, it, it makes me like get away from the PTSD thing as well. But I realize on one hand, that's, that's silly. Um, so push aside those preconceptions and don't worry about basically what everybody's saying and what they think. Just worry about how is what you're going through affecting you. And most importantly, I think affecting your family. Like if you're not working out your stuff, however that may be, seeing, talking to someone you really trust or seeing a formal counselor or what have you, if that's going to make, if not doing that, it's going to make your, uh, your life worse or is, you know, already making your life worse or your, or, your, or uh, you know, threatening your life with your family, your spouse, your loved ones, your kids, um, then just do something about it. Take some action because doing something is, even if it's not the most ideal thing is better than just keeping going with what you've got. I spent a lot of my career. In fact, I was just talking with my wife about it yesterday. I was so angry through most of my career um, and most of our life together as a military couple. And I look back and I just think, God, that was so many wasted moments and years because of how much anger I was harboring and yeah. wasn't doing anything about it. A lot of that was related to the, the military life I had, the experiences I had that I wasn't processing through. So, It's easy to see how the statistics for divorce in military marriages is so high when yeah. you look back and reflect on times like that, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, and you feel lucky, um, yeah. for those relatively few of us that made it through as, as couples the whole time. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it just wasn't the case because you, you, sometimes it wasn't going to be the case, you know, even in my, in my case, there's not a person I know that, that did make it through with a long relationship, um, that can't, <clears throat> that can't say that as well. So, yeah. <laughs> well it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this evening um thank you so much for your time i know we've covered a lot and there's probably going to be a lot to unpack for people who watch this um you know from the beginning of your career all the way to to your end uh martial arts philosophy air force so much for people to enjoy this so i just want to say thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and honor yeah thank you it's a great conversation i appreciate you having me Thank you very much. You enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Appreciate it. Cheers.